How many of you have ever known somebody who had incredible potential and they never fulfilled it because something happened in their life and they blew it or they wasted it or something, something just derailed them? How many of you have known somebody like that? Raise your hand. Okay, in my life, the guy's name was Spencer. I won't tell you his last name, but his name was Spencer. Spencer was a good friend of mine. He was an incredible athlete. He was about 6'3". He was African-American, one of my best friends. He played basketball, but where he was really special was as a wide receiver on the football field. He could catch any ball that came within five to ten yards of him. He was just athletic. He had great hands. He would reach up with one hand, grab a ball out of midair. But he wasn't just an athlete. This guy was one of those guys that had one of those smiles that everybody really wished they had. It was that perfect smile, the perfect teeth, just as white as they could possibly be. And when he smiled, the entire room seemed to light up a little bit brighter just because he was in it. He had a charismatic personality. He was incredibly intelligent. He was the guy that everybody would have said, this guy's going to be the guy that goes pro, that makes millions, that does all these things. He was a year older than I was. It was in my early beginnings of my junior year, his senior year. And there was something that happened. I wasn't around at the time, but it was in our cafeteria where he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Now, Spencer was the guy that could be friends with everybody. He could connect across all of the little cliques and divides, and everybody loved him. And he was hanging out with the wrong crowd one particular day when the cops came in and busted some of those people for some drugs that they had in their possession, and they took him down with it. This was a guy that could have made it out of our small town. This was a guy who would have had scholarships. This is a guy who could have done anything he wanted to do. But here, all of a sudden, one day, it's completely ruined. Wasted potential. If we went around the room today, you all have stories of people in your life that you would think of and you would say, oh, I know somebody like that. I know somebody that had incredible potential. Something happened and they wasted it. And today, here we come to Samson, and Samson is known kind of as the guy of wasted potential. If you look in Hebrews 11.32, which is where our series is, it mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, then Jephthah. So today we're on Samson. We get one word. We jump back to Judges chapter 13 through 16, where it tells us all about Samson. In Judges chapter 13, we learn about Samson's birth and the miraculous surroundings there. In Judges chapter 14 and 15, we get the first of his feats of strength, five feats of strength in those two chapters, three of which it says the Lord came upon him and he did incredible feats of strength. Judges chapter 16, we get five more feats of strength. Most of those are associated with Delilah and him playing with fire and playing with danger. And most of us would recognize Samson as a person where we would say, He had incredible potential, and he wasted it. He didn't meet up with that potential. Some would call Samson the story of a tragedy. Some would call it the story of a warning. Some would call Samson a case of unfulfilled potential, and I think there's something there. And so as we go through this today, what I want you to take, in part, is that sitting in this room, we have amazing potential. Many of you are incredibly bright. You're extremely intelligent. God has gifted you in ways that I could only imagine to be gifted. You're young. You have all of your years ahead of you. You have great personalities. You dress well. You go to Cedarville. What more could you want, right? Just kidding. But you do have incredible potential. I don't want you to waste that potential. Our desire for the faculty and the staff here, our desire to pour into you as a student 
is for students to go on and do amazing things for God, not so that you get the glory, but so that ultimately he gets the glory and so that this world is changed. And even as an institution, Cedarville as an institution has incredible potential and to faculty and staff and those who are in the room, I don't want us to waste the potential that God has given us either, the opportunity to pour into the lives of others and to take seriously the task that is before us so that we can have our part in doing what he wants to do to change this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody in the room that wants to waste their life? I say no. We want to make a difference. We want to stand up and be counted. And so as we read through this story, let us look at some of these warnings and let us apply them to our lives so that we will stand up for Christ in a bold way and be counted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, this story is not even about Samson and unfulfilled potential. It's a story of God's grace. It is a story as the entire chapter of Hebrews is a story about how faithful God is over and over and over again with fallen men and women. And God is always there. He does not fall. He does not fail. He is the one that we can rely upon. And even in this section of scripture on Samson and Delilah and all of the faults, in the end, God shows up and he's faithful. The New Testament gives us the indication that we have Old Testament stories and Old Testament events as a record for our education, but not necessarily for our imitation. So if you as a student are looking for somebody that you want to imitate, don't pick Samson, all right? Let me just get that out there right now. Don't pick Samson. Pick Joseph. Pick some of the others. Don't pick Samson. This is not one we want you to imitate. He's a man of amazing physical strength, but a man of amazing spiritual weakness. Judges chapter 13, it starts out, It says these words, Judges chapter 13, verse one, it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Notice here at the beginning and notice what's missing. We've read through a couple of stories already in the book of Judges. We've learned about the cycle in the book of Judges, about what happens when God's people rebel against him, then God's people are under oppression because God sends somebody to oppress them. Then they repent or they cry out for God and God sends a judge or deliverer. But notice in chapter 13, verse one, we see this downward spiral in the book of Judges continuing. And it says the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. It never mentions that they were sorry for their sin. It never mentions that they repented of their sin. It never mentions that they cried out to God for help. And yet God was still gracious. And in verse two, it continues on to talk about exactly how Samson's birth came about. And God did it in a miraculous fashion. And God sent him in a miraculous way. But we see this downward spiral. I can't help but think that there's a warning here for us. And that the longer we play with sin, the longer we grow close to sin, the longer we grow comfortable with sin, that there's a downward spiral that takes place, that we are more and more comfortable with sin, hoarding over us, with sin, controlling us, with sin, enslaving us, and that we need to flee from sin and we need to to move away from sin and never grow comfortable being in bondage to sin. And here Israel has grown so comfortable in this cycle that as the downward spiral continues, they're no longer alarmed by it. I look at our culture, look at the most popular movie that was released this weekend. I think about a culture that's no longer ashamed of sin, but we live in a culture that actually glorifies sin and puts it on the big screen and makes millions and millions of dollars. 
off of the harm and the mistreatment and the abuse of women. And there is nothing in the Christian life that we should never find enjoyment in that in one way or in any other way. We should never glamorize it. We should never glorify it. We should be repulsed by it. And as Christian men, we should stand up and say, we will not stand for the mistreatment of women. They are God's creatures and God's beautiful creatures in the image of God, and we will stand and defend them with our last breath. And as women, you should never tolerate anybody who will mistreat you in that way because you are a daughter of the king. And in a society which is corrupt, and in a society which isn't depraved, who is it that's going to stand up and say, we will not go there? My prayer is it's us. Here's the situation. You see it falling with the last judge here, Samson, in Israel, and you see what's taking place. And it tells us here that he was going to be a Nazarite from his birth. And in verse 4, it talks about a Nazarite. So what is a Nazarite? I've got the slide for you. A Nazarite, according to Numbers, was a voluntary vow. It was for a limited time, and it had three prohibitions. The first prohibition was no wine, strong drink, or anything associated with the vine. The second was, and by the vine, you know that I mean grapes and wine, things of that nature. The second was no contact with the dead. He couldn't have any contact with the dead at all. And number three was no cutting of the hair and all of those references there for you in numbers. We don't have time to go there. So then we look at Samson's Nazarite vow and we understand that it was unique because it was not voluntary, but it was from his womb. It was not for a limited time, but it was unto death. And Samson didn't keep any of them. In fact, Samson broke all three of them, right? So number one, with no wine, strong drink, or anything associated with the vine, Judges 14, 10 through 20 talks about where he went down to the vineyard. And when he went down to the vineyard, there was a feast. And the Hebrew word there for feast is actually a word which means to drink. And so we understand he was associated with drinking wine, which he shouldn't have done. We understand also that he killed a lion. He went back and out of the carcass of that lion, he scooped out the honey. And when he scooped out the honey, he would have been touching something that was unclean, contact with the dead. Plus he killed a few people in his time as well. So he would have had contact with the dead, violated that one. And then you know the ending of the story with Delilah and him cutting the hair. So Samson violates every aspect of his Nazarite vow. So let's look at Samson's life. Strongest man ever. Some even suspect that Hercules, the mythological creature the Disney story was fashioned after Samson, the real person. If you look at some of the similarities there, it's very interesting. But we look at a summary of Samson's life. First of all, Samson was born to parents who prayed in chapter 13. And we're just going to walk through these. Verse 8, you see it said, Manoah prayed to the Lord. And then you'll also see in verses 15 through 20 that Manoah offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Lord, if this is you, let us sacrifice. So Samson was born to godly parents. There are some of you in the room that you were born to incredibly godly parents, but if you were honest right now, you would have to say in your own life, you're not living up to that godly heritage. There are issues in your life that you think you're hiding, but you can't hide anything from God. In chapter 14, verse 2, we see then uh, that he told his parents to get him a Philistine wife. Look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 2. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnon. Now get her from me as a wife. Now, first of all, most of you, if you went up to mom and dad and you said to mom and dad, mom and dad, get me that woman. What would mom and dad say to you? Who in the... I like that. You know what my dad would have said to me? 
after I got up off the floor, he would have said, who in the world do you think you are? Get me that woman. Now, Samson was the strongest man in the world, so maybe his dad wasn't going to encounter him and say, who in the world do you think you are? But he said, get her for me as a wife. Now, in this day and time, the parents usually arranged the wives. And here you see Samson who says, get me the Philistine wife, which Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4 forbid intermarrying with those of another, of another area. And then in verse uh, 3, it continues on there and it says, but Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is a godly woman who loves Jesus. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. It says, for she is right in my eyes. And then in verse seven, it repeats it. Now we understand when scripture repeats something, that means something important to us. And in verse seven, it repeats again, she was right in Samson's eyes. What does this mean? Samson said to his dad, dad, she looks good. Dad, she is a good looking woman. She's from the Philistines. I don't care. She looks good. Now there are some of you out there who all you're looking for is somebody that's pretty. All you're looking for is some beauty. In Proverbs 125, 4, it says beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes all the way to the bone, right? I'm just kidding. That's not in there. If your app does not go that far, okay? But some of you are really looking for only that superficial front. And what you're going to find out is that superficial front will result in the same problems that happen when Samson's only looking for that superficial front. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out there and find the ugliest woman in the world either, all right? You find a pretty woman that loves Jesus, but loving Jesus is more important than being a pretty woman. And if she loves Jesus more than she loves you, then you're going to be in good shape because she's going to put up with all of your messes all through your life because Jesus tells her to. And so I'm going to quit and move right on. All right. Look at what happens here. 14.6, he kills a lion. This guy is so strong that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him in verse six, rushes upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I don't even know how you tear a young goat into pieces. (laughs) But apparently, these were some pretty bad Duck Dynasty dudes back in this day and time, and so they were ripping goats open or something. I don't know. And Samson grabs a lion who comes at him, and he says, Nope, not going to happen in my time, and rips a lion to shreds. Now, can we agree this is one bad dude? I don't want to meet him in an alley. I don't care how many black belts or concealed carry things you may have. That's not a guy you want to touch. So he kills the lion, but look what he did. It says that he did not tell his parents what he had done. Oh, there's another lesson there. Why is it that we do things that we don't want to tell our parents about? Usually when you do something you don't want to tell mom and dad about, it's because you shouldn't have done it. You're trying to hide something. There's a pattern that we see here in Samson's life. He's disrespectful to his parents. Get me this woman. He's looking at, for love in all the wrong places, which just makes me think Samson is a country song waiting to happen. I mean, you can just see this in his life. Looking for love in all the wrong places. There's a tear in my beard and he's crying for you, dear. I don't know. We come up with something. That's for free. I didn't come up with all those names. But... Here is a country music song waiting to happen here. And Samson hides this from his parents. We don't know why. Verse 14, 7, he says again, she was right in my eyes. 
And then I've got for you in verse 14, chapter eight, or chapter 14, verse eight. Then it says that he reached into the carcass of the lion. He grabbed the honey. He violated part of his Nazarite vow, 1410. And also in verse five, it talks about the vineyards and it talks about to drink and it talks about the feast. He violates another part of his vow. And then look at what happens. You know the story here. He violated his Nazarite vow. He creates this riddle. As he creates this riddle, he puts it to them. They can't solve it. In verse 16, the wife comes over to him and says, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people. Now, let me put in a comma right here. Guys, if a girl ever comes up to you and says, you do not love me unless, run. <laughs> run. Here, this happens to Samson multiple times here. He says, his wife comes up to him, you only hate me. You don't love me unless you tell me this. He says, I haven't even told my father or mother. Shall I tell you? Well, he gives in. She weeps before him seven days on the seventh day, because she hard-pressed him, in, in good old Southern English, it means she nagged him to death, right? She was nagging him over and over. He gave in, and finally he tells him, what does she do immediately? She goes and tells her people. She betrays Samson. How's that looking good, looking, working out for you there, Samson? Your own wife is betraying you to other people because you look for superficial qualities rather than for trust and for a godly character and other things. And look at what happens here in verse 18. He says to them when he gets angry, if you had not plowed with my heifer, all right, put a comma right there, free marriage advice. Guys, don't ever call your wife a heifer. It's not a good thing. I don't care how it works, all right? That's worth the price of admission to chapel today right there. Don't do it. This is an idiom. You all get it. You don't plow with a heifer. And he says, you had plowed with my heifer. You would not have found out my riddle if you had not done this. So then he gets mad. Samson reminds me a little bit of the Hulk. Don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. Think about what happens here. Verse four, chapter 14, verse 19, anger issues arise. It says he went down to Ashkelon. That's 23 miles away. He kills 30 men. He travels back, and then he still goes home in hot anger. Now, I've got a map for you, if they can put the map up on the screen. You can see up here Timnah, up at the top where the red arrow is to the black dot, and you can see it draws the line over to the left, going up just below Dan, and then down going across, and then to the left again to go to Ashkelon. 23 miles is what they estimate that this would have been if you were to travel it. And so Samson walks 23 miles, and he's still mad enough that he kills 30 people just to get their garments off of them. He carries 30 garments 23 miles back to fulfill the riddle that he gave to the people. And then after that, the text tells us he went home in hot anger. He had an anger issue. He had an anger problem. Don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. But there are some of you in the room, and you have an anger issue too. And here we see anger issues can ultimately destroy us, and we see that all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so just by way of an aside here, I would say to you, deal with your anger issues if you have anger issues, and learn to get those under control. Verse 20, it's just crazy. This is a soap opera. Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So Samson gets mad, goes and kills people, brings back 30 garments. His wife's given to his best man. It's like my best man's wedding. I don't know. There's some movie here that should take place. And then in verse 15, he comes back after some days. We don't know how many days at the time of the wheat harvest. And he gives to his wife a young goat. And the goat, I guess, is supposed to make everything okay. All right, girls, if a guy 
messes up and does things that are horrible over and over and over and thinks he can buy back your love, there's a problem. I wish I had time to camp out here more, but I don't have time to camp out here more. And so he comes back. He finds out that the father has given his wife away to his best man. He gets angry again. So what does he do? He catches 300 foxes, or the word in Hebrew here is jackals. So it could have been jackals, which traveled in a pack, which might explain it a little easier. He catches 300 jackals or foxes, which could not have been easy. I don't know. But what do I know? I can't rip open a lion either. And so he catches all these and he ties their tails together. Now, I'm sure they didn't just stand still for him to do all of this. So this again is one bad dude. And he ties together 300 foxes or jackals tails together. He puts a torch in between them. He sets them on fire. He turns them loose. He torches the entire town. After he torches the entire town, they came up and they burned his wife and his father and their house with fire. And so then Samson strikes them down because Samson at that point still had a problem with anger. So he avenges his dead wife and his father-in-law. That really does sound like a Hollywood movie, doesn't it? 1515. They come after him. His own people say, we'll go get Samson. We'll bind him. So they send 3,000 men after him. Now, how many of you in the room would we send 3,000 people after to go capture? Roughly what we're talking about is everybody in the room right now would get up and go after Samson because that's how bad of a dude he was. They bind him, they take him to the Philistines, and when they go to the Philistines, he gets the jawbone of a donkey, great weapon, right? The jawbone of a donkey, and he slays a thousand people. He kills a thousand people. And then after he does this, in chapter 15, verse 16, he says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heap, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. And then he finishes and he calls the place Ramoth Lehi, which means basically the hill of a jawbone, or he names the entire spot after that jawbone that he's taken. And then in verse 18, we see a little sign of hope, 1518. It's one of two prayers recorded by Samson, but it's only a little sign of hope because he was very thirsty and he called out to the Lord and he said, you have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God heard his prayer. God split open a hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it and he drank and his spirit returned and he was revived. And then we move to chapter 16. Chapter 16, just after we thought there might be hope, but really we see that probably wasn't hope. That was probably one of those midnight cries that some of you have prayed to God. God, if you get me out of this situation, I will. And you make a deal with God. That's probably what it was similar to. And then we see immediately in chapter 16 that Samson went to Gaza and there he went to a prostitute. And the word here is not for a temple prostitute, but it's for a secular prostitute. And he went into her. And then the people came and they lay by the gates. And yet we see in verse three that Samson laid till midnight. He got up, he went out and they were laying by the gates to attack him. And so he is so arrogant at this point in his life that he takes the doors of the gates of the city on the two posts. He pulls them up. And then he takes them and he travels 40 miles to the top of the hill at Hebron. Now go back to the map. Down here at the very bottom left corner, you'll see Gaza. And you'll see the dotted line that takes place and goes all the way over to Hebron. He didn't have to travel that far with these gates to make his point, did he? I think he probably made his points when he pulled the gates up out of the ground and carried them anywhere. His point was made. But he was making a point, so he carried these gates in in an incredible feat of strength, and he carried them what's estimated to be 40 miles to the top of the hill over at Hebron. And then in 16 chapter 4, Delilah comes on the scene. 
He loved a woman whose name was Delilah. In 16.5, we see that she was offered 1,100 pieces of silver. That's by the five governors. So that's 5,500 pieces of silver, which is roughly 550 years wage or a lifetime of fortune to betray Samson. Samson, again, is looking for love in all the wrong places. And so here he has gotten involved with a woman who is seeking to betray him for a fortune of silver. 16 verses 6 through 9, she binds him with seven fresh bowstrings. 16, 10 through 12, she binds him with new ropes. 16, 13 through 14, she binds the seven locks of his head. And all of us reading through this are cringing at this point in time as we are thinking, Samson, why are you continuing to tell this woman your secrets? Why are you continuing to play games with this woman who is obviously seeking to betray you? Why don't you see what she's up to, Samson? This is taking you down. It's destroying you. And yet at the same time, we look back at our own lives and we understand that that temptation, whatever that temptation is, you know, it was Kenny Chesney, that great country music theologian who said, it's only your favorite sins that do you in. It's, I was just kidding, by the way, about being a great theologian, but he, it's the things that tempt us the most that end up doing us in. And in our life, we have these temptations that come. And if we were to write our story on the pages of Scripture and you would see that temptation that comes and that temptation that comes and that temptation that comes, here we have the story of Samson. And we say to Samson, Samson, flee. Samson, run. Samson, get away from that temptation. Samson, don't do it. It's going to destroy you. Samson, please get out of there. And yet we read about the tragedy and we can't look away and we see that in our own life, God gives us the opportunity too. When those temptations come over and over and over again, he's saying to us, flee that temptation, get away from that temptation, resist that temptation, run from that temptation. And all my prayer is for you and for me that we will not be like Samson in playing with fire so long that we become so arrogant that we think I can handle it, I can control it. Because Samson thought with all of his strength, with all of his arrogance, with all of his existence, he thought I can handle this. And here it comes for the fourth time. And for the fourth time in chapter 16, verses 18 through 21, Delilah betrays him and shaves his head. And you see it. Some of the most sad words in all of Scripture there in verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So then we see the results of a lifetime of rebellion. We see them in verse 21, and I've got verse 21 for you on a slide because I want to highlight for you all of the ands, all of the conjunctions that are in this verse where it says, and the Philistine seized him. And there's another and in here because it wants to slow you down as the reader, and this conjunction makes you pause. And it says, what happens as the result of continued sin? The Philistine seized him, and they gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with bronze shekels, and he was grinding at the mill in prison. Oh, but in Scripture, don't you thank God for the conjunctions, but. Usually that conjunction comes when it talks about all of the bad things we've done, and then it says, but God. And here in this text, it says, but the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. You know, I have to tell you, we can't play with fire. 
In your own life, there are some of you that have sin issues that you are hiding that you think nobody knows about. And for all of our guests, just forgive me for a minute while I speak to our students, our faculty, and our staff to say to you, don't play with fire. Don't allow pornography. Don't allow sexual misconduct. Don't allow whatever temptation it might be that grabs at you and holds on to you. Don't play with fire, but flee that temptation. Rid yourself of that temptation. As Romans 8 says, put that temptation to death by the power of the Spirit so that you can live a life that is sold out to God. The story doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just his downfall. Verse 23, we see the tragic end to this as it begins to come about. It says, now the lords of the Philistines gathered together. And I've got the verse for you on the screen because I want to highlight to you the repetition that's in this verse. It says, they gathered together. And why did they gather together? They gathered together to offer a sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And they, to rejoice. And they said this, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And in verse 24, it repeats all of that. It says, and when the people saw him, they praised their God. They gathered together, and you can see it at the top, to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And Dagon, this controversial as to whether he was a fish God or a grain God, but they're attributing here to him the acts of war. And as the acts of war, they're granting praise to their God for subduing Samson. And so they're saying, our God is mightier than your God. And what they did is they turned this into a battle between the one true God and a false God. And that's where we're going to see the one true God show up and act here in a few minutes. But the repetition here is that Samson's sin gave occasion for the enemies of God to praise a false God and a false idol. And here they say to him, to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, they praise their God. And notice the repetition in the second half of each verse. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Our God has given our enemy into our hands. And here they began to praise Dagon. And so they set up this dichotomy of who is the true God? Is it Dagon or is it the one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament? And here we see this set up. And what happens? Verse 25 their hearts were merry. They called out, so get Samson so that he can entertain us. And the, the word entertain is used here a couple of times. They called out Samson and he entertained them. How did he entertain them? We don't know for sure. But the speculation in the commentaries is that they brought him out and it wasn't because of his strength. His strength had left him. It wasn't because of his wit. It was probably because he was blind and they had gouged out his two eyes. And as they had poked out his two eyes, now they, they put stumbling blocks in front of him that he would stumble over or they would poke him as the mighty warrior in the back or they would whip him or they would slap him or they would make fun of him. And so here you have this once mighty invincible warrior and this mighty invincible warrior now has been reduced to the laughing stock of the entire auditorium as they make fun of him and as they give praise to a false God for what has happened to him. And here's Samson. And Samson, who can't see, says to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars. And archaeology has suggested that there were two pillars very close together that held the bulk of the weight. And so he filled the two pillars. And as he felt these two pillars, uh, the text indicates to us that he twisted them off of their bases. But here before he does that, it tells us that this was a house full and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And in verse 28, we see the second prayer of Samson as he called out to the Lord and he said to the Lord, and even in his prayer, look at all of the me's and all the eyes. He called out to the Lord and he said, oh God, please remember me. 
And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two miller pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He wasn't a perfect man. He was far from it. But oh, my dear friends, we have a gracious God. And here set up between the contrast of Dagon, a false god, and the one true God. God heard his prayer, and when he cries out, God allows him to have that strength again. And Samson has now learned that it is not his strength, but it is God's strength. And so the text tells us that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his entire life. Five times in 18 words, he mentions a personal pronoun. And yet God still answers his prayer because this is not about Samson. This is about the one true God. Now let me draw some conclusions to this as we wrap this up. I've got several conclusions for you here. First of all, don't let the main purpose of your life serve only as a warning to others of what not to do. Yeah, this should be one of our greatest fears. None of us wants to be remembered as a Judas None of us wants to be known for the things, the mistakes that we have done in our life. And so live your life in such a way that you don't want your life to serve for no other reason than as a warning to others. The second thing I think we can draw from this, Samson saw more clearly after he was blind than he did while he could see. What does that indicate to us? That too often we're tempted by what's pleasing to the eyes rather than choosing what is pleasing to God. If you are looking out and you know your temptation is what is pleasing to the eyes, then understand what this text is telling us is that Samson, once he was blind, did more in his death than he did in his life. A man with limited, unlimited potential, with unlimited strength, who could have done amazing things for God, who could have been a deliverer of the Philistines, yet even in his birth it said he would only begin the process that David would later complete. Unlimited potential lies before you. Don't let what's pleasing to the eyes distract you from what's pleasing to God. You see it all throughout Scripture, beginning back with Eve when she looked at the fruit and the fruit was pleasing to the eyes and she chose the fruit over she chose following God. And I urge you, brothers and sisters today, do not be distracted by what pleases the eyes, but seek to always go after what pleases God. Samson, a man of amazing physical strength, a man of amazing spiritual weakness. Too often, it's those who are the strongest, the most athletic, the best looking, the most intellectual, the most creative, the most gifted that begin to trust in their own ability over trusting in God. Don't ever do that. God's word reveals to us who God is And God's word is where we must stay grounded and what we must read to allow, to convict us, to guide us, to sharpen us, to teach us how we should live in a way that honors God. And so no matter how gifted you are, please, please, please stay connected to God's word and to God so that you can live a life that will fulfill what he wants you to do on this earth. God used even a sinful man to demonstrate victory over Dagon. It's no coincidence that Samson's mightiest act was in the temple of a false god. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If you have no self-control, I urge you today to get it. I close with this story. I like to scuba dive. So whenever I go, wherever I get to go, I love to get in the water and scuba dive for one reason, 
there's multiple reasons, but one reason is cell phones don't work underwater. And so nobody can touch you, nobody can get to you. You're just relaxing and you have to focus on one thing, which is breathing, right? If you don't breathe, you die, but you breathe and you just relax. And they even tell you don't, don't swim because you use up oxygen faster, you have limited oxygen. And so when you scuba dive, you're supposed to cross your arms, you're supposed to barely use your fins and you're supposed to just move along real slowly. So I was scuba diving off the coast of Tanzania near Zanzibar, if you know where the island off the coast of Tanzania is. And as I was scuba diving, I saw this interesting creature. Now, I've been in Tanzania, and Tanzanite obviously comes from Tanzania, and I saw this creature, and they're going to put the picture up here for you. And when I saw this creature, I noticed from a distance, and this is not the exact picture of the one I saw, but it's very similar, that it had the blue specks that looked like Tanzanite. And so I began to swim closer to it, and I've even got a different picture for you that's a little bit better, and you can zoom in there, you can see the little blue specks, and you can see how beautiful that creature looks under the water, and I've got one more picture for you here as you zoom in a little closer, and you can see it looks like you could almost reach and grab, and perhaps that would be Tanzanite that you could take home for free. You wouldn't have to pay for it. You could get it. You get something that you didn't have to work for or or deserve, but you're educated people. What is that? That's a sea urchin. In fact, it's a long-spined black sea urchin, and the bottom was full of them. What happens if you touch a sea urchin? Well, depending on whether it's poisonous or not, depends on how bad you're hurting, but even if it's not poisonous, the spines break off into your skin, and they're real prickly, and so it's hard to get out, and so you're going to be in a world of hurt. And so as I'm sitting there under the water, with my arms folded, moving very slow, staring at the photo of a sea urchin. I think back to God's Word and how often it is that what's pleasing to the eyes will destroy you. But what's pleasing to God will never destroy you. So we look at Samson and we wonder why in the world is he included in Hebrews 11 by faith? And we remember, Hebrews 11 is more about God than it is about us. And it's more about God's faithfulness, even with fallen men and women, than it is about us. And I remind you today that even if you're caught in a spiral, God is faithful to forgive you and to lead you out. God is faithful. So as you live your life, Don't look to the things that are pleasing to the eyes, but look to the things that are pleasing to the one true God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, today, I pray for all of our faculty, students, staff, and the guests who are with us, Lord. Father, you would help us to remember the story of Samson and to remember it, Lord, as a testimony to your graciousness and as a testimony to your faithfulness, but Lord, also to remember it as a caution to us Father, for us not to get too comfortable with sin, for us not to get too close to sin, but Lord, for us to seek to do the things that please you, not to look only to the things that please the eyes. God, my prayer for us all is that we will live our lives in such a way that you will receive honor and glory and that you will use us, Lord, to change this world, to make it a better place. And that by living a life focused on the gospel, You'll provide us with an opportunity to impact eternity and to bring glory to you. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And you are dismissed.